Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You can also follow me on facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugar sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Performance. David, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, David, I really enjoyed your book, and uh, I actually listened to it on audible.com, and that was a a really fun way to listen to it. And if listeners are interested, they can go to my website, paleorunner.org, and they can get a free month uh, trial subscription to audible.com where you could download that book. But David, I'd like to get into your background a little bit, and I know you're a runner yourself. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this idea of uh, how genes influence performance. It actually really came out of sort of a couple particular things in my own athletic career. So I grew up outside of Chicago in an area um, that had kind of a mini diaspora of Jamaicans in the 70s and 80s. And so we had these great, you know, my high school was loaded with outstanding runners. We won 24 straight conference championships. And so when I like flipped open an atlas, you know, when I was in high school and realized Jamaica is a country of two and a half million people, I said, boy, what's going on there? Why are like all these great sprinters at my high school in this tiny population? And then I moved up to longer distance in college, you know, where now I'm running against Kenyan athletes, getting to know some of them and starting to learn that not only are they Kenyan, but they're all from this one tiny minority tribe in Kenya. And so I'm just sort of, again, asking myself like, boy, I wonder what's going on there. And at the same time, training with, um, you know, five guys in my own team and seeing, despite doing the same thing, stride for stride, day after day, we actually got more different, not more the same. And so I just started to have these questions um, about athletic performance that I wanted to investigate. Mm. So you said in college, you started moving up to the longer distances. What distances were you focusing on? Oh, I mean, I was still middle distance. You know, I was okay. still best at like 800 meters, but in, in high school, I could pass off as a sprinter. Okay. Um, and because I've always had pretty good foot speed, but um, in college, not so much. Um, so m- maybe you'd find me on a four by 400 meter relay team once in a while, but never in the open. I was much more competitive as an 800-meter runner. Okay, cool. So, um, you know, in one of the earlier chapters of your book, you bring up this really interesting story of this tale of two high jumpers, and you've got one high jumper who basically just got into high jumping because he, he won a bet uh, that he couldn't jump jump over a certain height on his lunch break. And then you've got another guy who's been training for years, and they're both coming up with similar performances. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that story? Yeah, so that that's the tale of two high jumpers, like you said. So it, it, it starts talking about Stefan Holm, who is a Swedish high jumper, who was kind of good as a kid, but nothing you you would have you know you wouldn't have thought this guy was going to go on to be any kind of world beater. But he became totally obsessed with high jump. You know, he he eventually left school just to train multiple times a day, moved really close to a world class facility, and literally over twenty years got better at about a rate of one centimeter per year until he became Olympic champion. So literally, just this 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 guy who sort of seemed to have like will himself um, into championship uh, shape. 
And in the 2007 World Championships, he comes in as the favorite and he meets a guy named Donald Thomas. So Donald had eight months of training by the time he got to the World Championships. He had started high jumping on a lunchtime bet where he was sort of shooting his mouth off and a guy in the track team said, hey, I bet you wouldn't even be able to clear 6'6". So they, Donald goes and gets his basketball shoes. He clears 6'6 in a gym, then 6'8", then 6'10", then 7 feet. At which point, the, the track coach, his friend alerts the track coach. The track coach enters him in the next meet. He breaks a field house record, um, <laughs> takes a scholarship to Auburn. You know, and eight months of training later, he meets Stefan Holm in the world championship and actually beats him. Um, this Donald Thomas with horrendous form, like flutter kicks his legs. He has no, uh, no back arch. I mean, when I interviewed him, he described high jump as kind of boring, which is not <laughs> something you ever expect to come out of the mouth of a world champion. Right. right. And so when these two guys were examined, it was found that, um, Stefan Holm sort of through his training regimen hardened his Achilles tendon, which is basically like a spring in the back of your leg. Um, such that, you know, he got more elastic, he got more energy out of his Achilles tendon when he compressed it for jumping or when he stretched it for jumping. Um, and Donald Thomas was just actually born with a really phenomenally long Achilles tendon. So he could store a lot of elastic energy as well. So I use that as an example to show how two athletes can really get to the same place via extremely, extremely different paths. Mm-hmm. And in that story, you, you mentioned this idea of the 10,000 hours rule, which has become popular through uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book. And he kind of says, you know, it takes around 10,000 hours to master any kind of skill. But in, in this case, you had you know, Thomas who had basically done pretty close to zero hours and he was coming, he, he had already, uh, you know, exceeded someone who had put in thousands of hours of training. Um, so what, what do you think that tells us about the 10,000 hour rule? Yeah. So I sort of cheekily subtitled that chapter, the 10,000 hours plus or minus 10,000 hours rule, because <laughs> what, what you actually see in the sports science is that there's this incredible amount of individual variability. Um, so in this case, you had Stefan Holm who estimated he was closer to 20,000 hours and Donald Thomas who's closer to zero hours, right? So those two men average 20, 10,000 hours, but that tells you nothing about the reality of the situation. Right. So this 10,000 hour rule idea that has sort of come to mean that 10,000 hours of practice is both necessary and sufficient for elite status actually comes from a tiny study of violinists who were so highly pre-screened that they had already gained acceptance to a world-famous music academy when the study started. So this would be like looking at NBA centers, noticing they had all practiced a lot and ignoring the fact that also being seven feet tall got them to where they are, right? It's a study that's hopelessly biased against finding any evidence of talent. And if you look at more rigorous study in sports, there's tremendous individual variability. And often the more difficult the task gets, the greater the the variability actually gets. So um, that's that's the real story the science tells and not not that there's any particular rule. I mean, that, that rule was never anything more than an average of individual differences. So it, it obscured the individual variability by its very nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a distance runner, that's something that I've seen being on uh, high school and college teams is that there'll be people who might run 25, 30 miles a week all summer, and then they'll come in and they'll be one of the best on the teams. And then there's someone else running close to 100 miles a week in, in their middle of the pack. Um, have yeah. you seen that same th- sort of thing with your experience in distance running? Absolutely. I mean, and, and j- just as as a spectator to talk about something recent, like think of a guy like Dennis Cometo, who recently just won the Chicago Marathon. And and after he won, he said um, that he wasn't tired at all. If he had known he was so close to the world record, he would have run a little harder. <laughs> and this is a guy who was a farmer two years ago, okay. right? He was not running at all. So really? that, these kind of things are incredible. Um, and, but in, in my own experience, I means I sort of saw that, you know, I was partnered up with kind of a blue chip recruit in college for training, and he was way better than me when we started training together. But then by doing the same things every day, I actually caught up and surpassed him. 
Um, and so sort of coaches told me that I was just being tough and him that, you know, he's a head case, must have psychological issues. But for this book, I got tested um, for these genes that predispose people to having a high response to the kind of training I was doing. And it turned out I have a good endowment of those genes. And when I look back at it now, I, I, I think it was just a story where I was just had a low baseline, basically. But what what, what exercise scientists are now calling was a high responder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and I think it can be really damaging to some athletes when we pretend that it's they have psychological problems, not that there's there's influence of their biology. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that genetic test that you that you were talking about there, did that tell you that you were a high responder or that you responded to different types of training? Some of some of both, actually. Um, so it, it the, the responder genes I was tested for were with respect to a very specific type of training. Um, and now there are scientists, you know, there's there's work finding other responder genes for other tasks, like for weightlifting as well, not just for endurance training. So hopefully what, what we're moving toward, you know, is, is the promise, the original promise of the hum, Human Genome Project, which was to have sort of personalized environments, right? If we can figure out you know, you'll respond better to this type of training versus this other, then ideally we could say, hey, you might not be getting the results that you want, whether that's for health or fitness from this type of training, but you would respond really well to this other type of training. And that's why I think it's really exciting to to see this happening now. Mm-hmm. And when I heard you talking about that in your book, you know, I, I kind of thought, well, let's say you're more of a sprinter type and you're going to respond to sprinting. But if you're in the 10K, is that really going to tell you much? Because you still need to train for distance or even say the 10K or the marathon. Well, you still need to do some of that distance work? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, first, n- nobody should ever use genetics to like rule out directly measuring things, right? Like, like also looking at your work. It's just, it's just one tool. But yeah, I mean, it depends on, you know, it depends on what your goals are. But for some athletes, like I, I talk about this Danish scientist in the book who looks at muscle fiber types of all his athletes and he'll find, you know, for example, he had a kayaker who was trying to make the Olympics and I think it was a thousand meters, 500 or a thousand meters. And the guy would always get beat off the start and he would catch up, but he wouldn't make up the whole distance. And so the scientist looked at his muscle fiber types, found he was had this huge proportion of slow twitch or sort of endurance muscle fibers and said, hey, you're always going to be getting beat off the line. Like, why don't we switch you up in distance? And he did that. And the guy was instantly one of the top competitors in the world. So you know, I, I think there's an interplay. I don't think you want to ignore the kind of training that you have to do, um, you know, that everyone has to do for, for a certain event. At the same time, you don't want to be hitting your head against the same wall if it's not getting you where you need to be going. Mm-hmm. And while we're talking about training, you know, I saw a few weeks ago, you tweeted, uh, I think it was a, a study by of weightlifters at Oklahoma State. I think it was football players and they had trained for like four years and they got a lot stronger, but they really didn't, I don't, don't think they improved their speed. Or, um, and their sprint abilities. And I think a lot of times in um, sports, we there's a lot of folklore kind of surrounding how the best ways to train are. And, and uh, you know, reading your book, you, you bring to light a lot of those different ways of thinking kind of outside the box. And can you can you tell me, do you remember tweeting that story? And I do. What, what did you, what did you, why did you uh, put that out there? I, I put it out there because I think, like you said, there's a lot of folklore about strength and conditioning training or training in general. And very rarely, um, are results actually measured, right? So intuitively, stronger muscles, more explosive, right? And and to some degree, we know that's true. But I think there's been kind of a frightening lack of an attempt to actually correlate certain types of training to the performances on the field, right? So those those Oklahoma State athletes who were working really hard on their bench press, for example, got much better at bench press. But nothing that the scientists then measured um, with respect to what they actually do was improved. So maybe they just didn't measure the right thing, but maybe their 
they're spending a lot of time in a kind of hard training that isn't really benefiting them. You know, so there's a lot of um, people who will tell football players, I'll make you faster for the NFL combine, right? And very few of them are actually are actually doing any kind of training that's really linked to speed improvements, right? We know speed's very hard to improve, but you can improve the ability to sustain speed. Uh, but that that was kind of shocking to me at Oklahoma State that these guys who got so much stronger through four years of weightlifting really didn't improve their speed at all, which to me says that those strength and conditioning coaches, you know, either one, speed is incredibly hard to improve, and two, there are people spending a lot of time doing a type of training that isn't getting them the result that they're being told that, that, that they're, they're headed for. Mm-hmm. And through your studies, have you found, because we have a lot of endurance athletes that listen to this program. Have you found um, any situations like that in endurance training where people are doing some sort of training that really might not be helping them that much? Well, there, there were some. So uh, there are a couple kind of different things about that. One, I think it's pretty clear now that people have an individualized response to altitude and that some people really, if they just go up to altitude and they're expecting to get like a big training benefit from just a, like a 10-day stint at altitude, that works for some people. And for other people, it's actually going to be detrimental because it takes them longer to acclimate and they're they're just not going to be able to get any quality training in, right? So, and I'll see this even with elites, like they'll go to altitude for a week, right? And if they're not, if they don't have that really rapid response to altitude, that's probably actually more like a week of lost training mm. um, than, than, you know, a week of benefit. Um, but, and I think a lot of people, even distance runners are sometimes prone to, um, sort of too much long, slow distance sometimes. If you're doing the ultra marathon, that's one thing. But the kind of training I saw guys doing in, in Kenya, you know, still very focused on high intensity and then keeping their slow runs like really, really easy mm-hmm. um, seems to me to make a lot of sense with with emerging physiology. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Kenyans because they have uh, extraordinary abilities and a lot of people have tried to figure out what is it? Is it their genetics? Is there something with their training? What did you find out about the Kenyan athletes? Well, specifically, it's it's the Kalenjin athletes, um, this one minority tribe in the Western Rift Valley province. And actually, if you've been following the marathon season this year, so Kenyan athletes went one through five in Berlin and the men's one through four in Chicago, one one or one, two in one in New York. And then the women went one, two, four, I think in Berlin. And I mean, but every single one of these athletes, even though it says Kenya next to their name, every single one is Kalenjin, every Mm. single one. That's a source population, the size of Costa Rica. Like, can you imagine if Costa Ricans went one through five in the Berlin marathon to to put their success in perspective this year, 17 Americans have run under sub two ten in the marathon in history and 72 Kalenjin have done it this season so far. Wow. Um, and there are two things. One, they on average have a body type that is conducive to good running economy, which is getting good speed per oxygen that you're using. And that's because they have their ancestry at very low latitude. So I was crisscrossing the equator when I was visiting them um, in a hot and dry climate. And the evolutionary adaptation to that is long limbs that are thin at their extremities. It's the same reason that old radiators have lots of coils. It's to increase surface area to volume to let heat out. And because your leg is a pendulum and running is swinging the pendulum, it happens to be very efficient for running right? Good for running, terrible for swimming, mm-hmm. where you want a long torso and short legs. That's just on average. That's not to say every person in that population has it, but that's on average. So you take this body type that on average is very conducive to efficient running. You put it in a community where there's no opportunity cost to try to start running, right? Like nobody's putting off grad school mm-hmm. uh, instead of training. And then this mentality, they, they have this like anti 10,000 hours mentality, right? So a guy like Kometo, instead of saying like, well, you know, I'm in my mid twenties or my late twenties, I haven't put in the training. 
I can't start now. I missed my chance. Like Jeffrey Mutai comes up to him in a mall and says, like, you look like you could run. Why don't you come to training? And a week later, he's like latching onto an Olympian to try to do an interval or two, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that sort of, if I have talent, all I need to do is train really hard and success will come. That sort of no limits despite your age mentality. I think it's that, you know, the the environment, which is now chock full of role models and, and you know, an, on average, a talented population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then specifically the Kalenjin, what is it about that particular tribe that, because a lot of Kenyans have those long spindly spindly legs and they're raised at altitude, but is there something special about that area? Well, the the, Cal- the Kalenjin have that, they are the ones that have that sort of long, that long leg physique. Okay. So the Kikuyu actually, in, who have produced a couple good distance runners, um, uh, are a lot, much larger, you know, the largest tribe in Kenya and have, from the training camps I visited, have many more people in training mm. than the Kalenjin do, but are producing far fewer good runners. And they're actually a little, tend to be a little shorter and stockier because while they have their ancestry at low latitude, they were in sort of a more moist climate. Um, so they don't quite have that same um, elongated uh, build. But with respect to the area, so I think what my read on the sports science is, and I included this in the book, is that the ideal um, environment would be to have sea level ancestry. So like all your forebears were born at sea level, and then to yourself grow up between six and 9,000 feet of altitude. So at sea level ancestry, that means you will get that red blood cell boost. When you go to altitude, you're not genetically adapted to altitude. But if you're born there, you get the developmental effect of larger surface area of your lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, coincidentally, this is kind of the childhood story of Shalane Flanagan and Ryan Hall, the two best, you know, two fastest American American marathoners at the moment, sea level ancestry, born at altitude either in California or Colorado. So if I were trying to give myself the best chance of raising a distance prodigy, I would take my sea level genetics and raise them between six and 9,000 feet, which is exactly the story for the vast majority of the Kalenjin population. Okay. You know, something I was surprised by is, uh, I think you wrote this in your book, is that a lot of the Kenyan athletes actually had a high proportion of fast twitch fibers. I think it was pretty high compared to, I, I think a lot of sprinters also had a high percentage, but it seems strange that the distance runners also had that. Did I get that right? Well, a lot a lot of sprinters do, although the Kalenjin, I haven't seen fiber typing on the Kalenjin. Okay. So, so I'm not sure about that one. What they did have, though, was they had... Um, this high prevalence of the ACTN3 gene, which is associated with sprinting. Um, it codes for a protein found only in fast twitch muscle fibers. And, and, and perhaps it's surprising that, you know, that all the Kenyan runners would sort of have the so-called right version for sprinting. But then again, if you think about how, how fast they sprint at the end of those races, I mean, they're running way faster than most people can sprint at top speed. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the gene was originally thought to be an either you're a sprinter or you're a distance runner gene, but that has sort of been blown up and it now looks like, you know, elite sprinters do have it, but it, but if you do, it doesn't mean that you're a sprinter. You know, it doesn't harm your your endurance ability. So, so to me, the combination you'd want is the endurance and that ability to kick the way they do. So, so sort of not surprising um, from my perspective. Right. So let's talk a little bit about sprinting. Um, a lot of the great sprinters come from Jamaica. What do they have in common that makes them so great? Yeah, and it's, it's so every every beyond even Jamaica. I mean, every man who has been in an Olympic 100 meter final since the boycotted Olympics of 1980. Whether his homeland is Jamaica, the U.S., Canada, Portugal, Netherlands, wherever, um, they all have their ancestry, excuse me, in a small area on the coast of West Africa. So if people who have been sampled in that area would love to see more science, but so far, on average, slightly higher proportion of fast twitch muscle fibers. Just on average, slightly higher. Um, and I discuss in the book evidence that that's part of a genetic adaptation to combat malaria because that's the highest malaria danger zone in the world. 
Um, but that said, there are many more people of that ancestry in the United States than there are in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So it can't be down just to that. Mm-hmm. So I think you take, you know, on average, a population with some talent, and then you put them on this island where sprinting is like high school football is in Texas. You know, it's like the chances of a good sprinter falling through the cracks in Jamaica is like the chances of a good high school football player falling through the cracks in Texas. Like it's just not going to happen. Mm. And so there's this whole, you know, the national high school championships in Jamaica is like the crowning event of the year. And so you have shady boosters and everything, you know, people trying to bribe parents to get their kid to come to this track high school. And you get a kid like Usain Bolt, right, who wants to be a cricketer or a soccer player. So he wants to play these sports six foot four when he's 15 years old with blinding speed. How many countries does that kid end up on the track? Right. My guess, Bahamas, Trinidad, Jamaica, no others. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a combination of, you know, on average having uh, enough people um, with the physical traits you need and then this incredible talent spotting system. And then Jamaica actually develops their athletes really slowly. So I mentioned this briefly in the in the book, The Speed Plateau, which is this kind of plateau sprint speed that, that young athletes will hit if they train too hard, too specifically, too early. And Jamaica actually divides their championships into classes. So the underclassmen are competing against other under... It's like freshmen against freshmen, sophomores against sophomores. And I think that puts less pressure on the coaches to overtrain the kids. Because when I saw freshmen in high school training in Jamaica, it was laughable compared to the kind of training that a freshman at a good track high school in the United States would do. You know, it was like three days a week. Really? Okay. And But then they ramp it up as they become juniors and seniors. And so I think they're really taking the, the right approach to long-term development, not short-term athletic development. Mm-hmm. And do you know anything specifically about Usain Bolt's training? Yeah, I mean, I visited it several times, and you know, like he spent like more time trying to like balance a traffic cone on his head one time when I saw his training <laughs> than he did like working out. It was really interesting because the disparity between how Johan Blake, his training partner, works out and how he works out is immense. I mean, the, their coach Glenn Mills, like if if Usain Bolt is like still there at the end of practice when Glenn when Johan Blake is, he says. Hey, big man, what are you doing still here? Like, it's the end of practice. I mean, so, but, you know, and that could seem lazy, I guess. He calls himself lazy left and right in his first autobiography, but he says things like, some sportsmen really train hard, and if I did that, I could really be good. <laughs> but, but, I, but I actually think he has figured it out. So when, when he was a junior and won World Juniors as a 15-year-old, which is an under-19 competition, so that's mm-hmm. like a boy beating men, right? Mm-hmm. And he... Then, you know, people wanted him to train harder and he started training harder and he was injured all the time. And then we didn't hear from him for like five years because he was always injured. Okay. And then he got a new coach. He, he backed off. I think he realized he understands his physiology better than anybody else does. He knows when he needs to rest. You know, he, he, the indoor season doesn't even exist to Usain Bolt. The years between world championships, he's nowhere to be found. With athletes that are that explosive, I think that's there's a lot of evidence that that's how you keep them injury free, and that's that's the most important thing for people that are that explosive. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe instead of uh, being lazy, maybe he's really just listening to his body. Maybe he's better in tune than some other athletes are. I think so. I mean, if if he's lazy, then more sprinters need to be that kind of lazy. <laughs> Right. I, I really do think it's him listening to his body. And I would say one of the biggest mistakes that the sports physiologists would tell me they see, you know, and that I would see when I travel around was athletes who are tra- doing too much endurance when they should be training for explosion. Because it's really clear that while you can't cause a shift of your fast twitch muscles to your slow twitch fibers with that with training, you can cause a, a switch from type 2B to type 2A, which is the most explosive to somewhat less explosive. And that, that happens from like almost any kind of training. So you sort of, you know, one of the reasons a taper works is because when you taper, you, the type 2A go back to the type 2B and you get your, your speed back. Um, 
So I, I really think there are a lot of athletes who are really explosive who are over, over training. I, I watched sumo wrestling training when I went to Japan. Mm-hmm. And these are guys who like 20 seconds would be a marathon bout for them. Mm-hmm. And they have one bout a day, right? They're like training to be more explosive than 100 meter runners probably. And they're like pushing each other across the ring, you know, in intervals for half an hour. I'm like, this is crazy. This is not you know, this is not the kind of training that's going to be functional for what you're actually doing. Right. And there's also people who it seems that they respond pretty well. Like once they, once they do start putting in the hard work, they start responding pretty well. I think Jim Ryan, you mentioned in the book, who was actually fairly Amazing. slow. I mean, for high school standards, like he ran like a five something mile. And then within a year, he was down in the low fours. In- incredible. Hard to believe if it hadn't happened. You know, I mean, he runs it. What is he's on the C team for cross country in his first year because it's the only sport he can make. Um, he runs a 540 mile time trial, mm. you know, and then you know, half a year later, he's running 408, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and he was doing the same, at, at first, he was doing the same training as other guys. So once his coach realized that he was gifted, then they started to put him on like training like a pro. But the craziest part to me was that first cross country season where he's the 14th man on the C team originally. And by the end of the season, he's the top guy and they win the state championship. And then he comes back for track season and he gets down to a 408, right? So he basically goes from like, just as sort of random average member of any, I mean, even worse, really, right? Yeah. 540 miles, not going to get you anything, even as a high school freshman, um, to 408, where he's like one of the best runners in the world at the time. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about steroids for, for a minute. Do you see, how, how important are they, say, in a sports like in, uh, endurance running? And, and what do you see their role right now? It's a good question. I mean, a lot of times I think people, you know, want to say that a lot of the drugs don't work for endurance. Obviously, drugs like EPO work for endurance quite well, as the Tour de France has. You know, guys on the highest climb on the Alpe d'Huez and the Tour de France are like 10 minutes slower than they were a decade ago, right? Is that because they're not training hard anymore? No, I don't think so. It's because there's an EPO test now. But even even steroids like testosterone is really helpful for endurance. Um, that's why men run faster marathons than women, right? It's it, among other things, testosterone stimulates red blood cell production. So I actually have some data in the book where I I show um, one runner, Joanna Harper, who was born male and transitioned to be female, she's transgender, um, and kept she's a medical physicist and kept track of uh, her running while she was undergoing testosterone suppression. And um, she's a national age group champion and just the year of testosterone suppression took 50 seconds per mile, uh, added 50 seconds per mile to her half marathon time. Just testosterone suppression, right? Okay. It, it's a big deal. Wow. So, David, is there anything that you've learned? Uh, are, are you still running today? And is there anything that you've learned through all your research that you're going to incorporate into your training? Yeah, uh, I, I shouldn't insult running by calling what I do today running, but yes. you know, <laughs> I call it, But I, I was out late last night doing some hill intervals um, just to clear my mind, you know? Um, and when I was in South Africa, um, a a recently retired Spanish pro 1500 meter runner, of course, took me on a run in the mountains, which is like brutal, you know, when (laughs) I was reminded of what it's like to run with someone who's, who's in way better shape than you, but, but also great. Um, and I, I, I have incorporated it. You know, I incorporated some of the principles into my training myself, just from learning about physiology before I wrote the book. So I was a better runner on, even distance, even cross country on 35 miles a week of like targeted intervals than I was on 90 miles a week of distance. Mm. Like I've always been explosive. I always had a good vertical jump. You know, I could pass as a sprinter um, in high school. And when I tried to train at 90 miles a week, like it just sapped my speed. Mm-hmm. And and I was better at every distance on short, hard intervals. You know, so I started to realize, and it took me a couple of years to figure that out. So I wasted a couple of, I didn't waste a couple of years. You know, it just, I was frustrated for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so I started to realize that like individualized training was definitely the way to go. That what, what was right for other guys, because that was working for other guys that I was training with, wasn't right for me. So I already had these thoughts about individualized training. And I've just gone more down that road um, in the reporting of the book, because not only because I've now had all these physiological tests, um, but I, I really think, and most people won't have those tests, nor do they need to, but they should take a trial and error approach to their training. Mm-hmm. Like they should... You know, if if their goal is lower blood pressure or whatever, then they should um, experiment with different kinds of training and see what causes that to happen. Because I was doing hill intervals last night because I I know how to drop my blood pressure like this when it gets high. Hill intervals that just works for me, and I have high blood pressure in my family, so I'm going to be doing that. You know, that's going to be a lifelong endeavor for me. Um, so I would just encourage everyone, even though you want to get right into a discipline routine, to set aside some time to do trial and error and make guesses about your own biology. Because the trick is to find the right environment for your inimitable genetic. Mm-hmm. And do you think that genetic testing would be helpful? I mean, are you talking about the 23andMe or is there something else that you would recommend? Well, 23andMe now I think is going to be more limited in some respects. I don't know all of that now, but I think the, you know, the FDA is sort of coming down on them this week. Um, 23andMe, you're not going to get that, that kind of stuff from, from 23andMe. And I, I, I wouldn't recommend, um, for the most part, genetic testing for most people at this point. I mean, you'd be better off getting like a muscle biopsy. That okay. would tell you more. I mean, that tells you something about your genetics, but it's not looking at the genes. Um, but, you know, I don't think... The, the only kind of genetic testing that I would really actually recommend people thinking about doing at this point is more like the injury predisposition stuff. So there are some genes that can mark you as having a greater likelihood of sort of, you know, having injuries to tendons and ligaments, as well as one if you're interested in playing football that predisposes you to brain damage from getting hit in the head more. And those, I think, are more are more promising. The, um, the responder gene stuff is really cool, but there's not really a commercially available test for it right now. Um, okay. So unless you're writing a book and doing the research, that's going to be a little tough for you to come by. But I don't think it'll be too long, actually. Well, David, it's been very interesting talking with you today. Thanks so much for being part of the show. My pleasure. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, and I, I'm really glad that you enjoyed the sports gene. Uh, I, I, there was just my own personal questions, so I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed them too. You've been listening to another Paleo Runner podcast. If you like podcasts, you're also going to like Audible.com. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Kindle, Android, or MP3 player. If you'd like to get a free audiobook download, go to audibletrial.com slash paleorunner or click on the link displayed on the app right now. Thanks for listening.